0: Hello everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. When I'm not doing this radio show professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture and vibe of our amazing city. On many shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore their history and their energy. What makes those neighborhoods special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, the occasional elected official, and occasionally an architectural aficionado. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, you may have heard us talking about the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York. We focused on the history of African-Americans in New York City, the history of the women's suffrage movement. We've also talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. They've been here 201 years, everyone, believe it or not. We've also covered the history of punk and opera in New York, and we've also explored the city's greatest train stations and some of its bridges. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, and even some of its more interesting cemeteries. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're hosting one of our special shows, Maritime New York. We're exploring the history and influences of New York being not only on the water, but being surrounded by water. And our two guests tonight are Rediscovering New York regulars. One is Justin Rivers. He's the chief experience officer for Untapped New York. Justin started his career as a New York City middle school English language arts teacher on the Lower East Side. He used to drag his students to historic sites across the city in an effort to bring New York City's lesser-known stories to life. Sounds like the kind of teacher I would have loved in elementary school. Uh, That's how he became co-creator of The Wonder City. It's a graphic novel that reimagines New York City's entire history. Justin was also the playwright and producer of The Eternal Space, an off-Broadway play that centered on the demolition of New York City's Pennsylvania Station. It was with this production and one simple tweet that he fell head over heels for Untapped Cities. It was called that at the time, now it's Untapped New York, Uh, who he partnered with for his Remnants of Penn Station tour, which I still have to go on and I haven't as of yet. Along with his role as Chief Experience Officer, Justin is the founding director of the Character Connection Initiative. It's a nonprofit that connects character, education, and mindfulness to middle school curricula. He is also a creator and lead guide for some of Untapped New York's popular tours, including the Underground Tour of the Subway, the Tour of the Remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, the Secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge, Tour of the Remnants of the World Fair's Flushing Meadow, the Tour of the Secrets of Coney Island, the Maritime History of New York, which we are talking about today, the Hidden Gems of Rafael Guastavino, and the Art in the New York City Subway Walking Tour. Justin, welcome. Thank you. Our second guest is also Rediscovering New York Regular and our special consultant, David Griffin. We have quite a lineup tonight, everybody. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and his clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. And I can say I've been lucky enough to have been on David's invite list. His latest blog, and you've got to read this, everybody, it's called Every Building on Fifth. Google that, Every Building on Fifth of Landmark Branding. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square Park up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, a hearty welcome always to returning to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff. Um before we get to New York and the water, I just want to find out a little bit about your backgrounds. Uh, Justin, are you from New York originally? And if not, when did you move here?
1: No, no, no. I I was born across the river in New Jersey.
0: Well, uh, that's New York. Yeah. Kind I mean, of.
1: Pretty, no, it was <laughs> it was New York adjacent. You could see it from my hospital room when I was born. I was born in Hackensack. Uh, so, uh, not Literally a room far. with a view. The yeah. A people would view, kill for it today. But, yeah, yeah, of course. Um and uh, was raised in a town on the northern border of New York State and New Jersey, Ringwood, Uh, and then came to Fordham University when I was 18 and never left,
2: been here ever since.
0: David, you share a similar history in that you were not born in the city itself, but right outside.
2: Yes, uh, in Long Island, uh, near Port Jefferson, actually, and then uh, lived in the city for a while and currently reside in the Hudson River Valley.
0: How did you get into the New York-centric business that you're in, David?
2: Well, uh, my family has always lived in and around New York City, and I've always been interested in architecture from a very early age. My siblings and I were the first paid docents at a New York State museum, in this case, Old Bethpage Village Restoration. And we used to dress up in 1850s period wear and help interpret the children's games of that period for museum visitors. So, uh, you know, growing up, my grandmother had a historic house that was on the Hudson River. I sort of became interested in the atmosphere we are kind of connected with that, and from there, just became more and more interested in how buildings were created, communities generated, and architecture developed in this country. Mm. Justin,
0: how did you get into the business of illuminating people about New York's great things, including some of its uh, remnants of train stations yeah, and subways and the water? How did you remnants, how did you get into guys. it?
1: Uh, so, as uh, you mentioned, teaching. I taught uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade social studies and language arts uh, to a bunch of very bored students on the Lower East Side. And uh, I said, you know, you guys live in the most history dense area of the country. We need to get you out into the street. Uh, And I always say it always started with the fence at Bowling Green. Um, I brought them there, told them this is living history. Touch it. They loved it. And uh, that's how I got started and then just started writing a series of uh, projects related around New York history, like Penn Station, the Eternal Space, and the the Wonder City. And then I was a big fan of untapped uh, cities when Michelle Young founded it, and that's how I got started.
0: Well, uh, speaking of the founding of New York, it's a city that's very much founded on water and uh, was even discovered by Europeans as, as a result of being on the water. Um, you want to talk about the beginning of that, that Justin, when Henry Hudson, uh, sure plowed his world yeah. plow but sailed his way up the Hudson river. Yeah. So, uh, Henry Hudson
1: was, uh, he was an Englishman sailing on behalf of the Dutch and he was actually looking for water. The reason how he got here was he was looking for the Northwest passage. And in case people don't remember their uh, fourth grade history, Northwest passage was a passage that would connect the Europeans to trade over in Asia. Uh, and he's, sailing over the Atlantic and he pulls over into a harbor that his first master said a thousand ships could sail in safety, which was New York Harbor and immediately looked at the river north of the Island of Manhattan and said, that's it. That's the Northwest passage. And then, uh, got up to about Albany area and he goes, oh, no, this is not it. (laughs) He says, it's way too shallow, way too narrow, and he turns around and he sails back on his way out.
0: Imagine as you go upriver it getting narrower. Yeah, now (laughs) we're going,
1: Uh, this doesn't Uh, seem like it's getting as navigable as I thought it was going to be. We're certainly not getting to Asia this way. Uh, But on his way out, he notices two things. There's a native population that's uh, very plentiful in the area and also that the area is teeming with wildlife, which was going to be good for his bosses at the time, which were the Dutch West India Company.
0: Hmm. Wildlife meaning also uh, uh, beavers and beavers fur. Yeah,
1: mainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Hmm. um, so he sails back, tail tucked between his legs. He goes back to the Dutch West India Company based in Amsterdam and he says, I didn't find the Northwest Passage, but I found a great place for you to start a fur trading post.
0: In fact, the Dutch did indeed um, settle here and establish uh, towns. But New Amsterdam, which uh, became New York, wasn't the first, David, was it? There was another uh, uh, settlement that they established.
2: Yeah, no, the uh, The first settlement was actually Albany. Uh, the Dutch decided to make their first permanent settlement quite a ways from the harbor, in part because they were nervous about being uh, sort of potentially attacked by you know other mariners, other nations. Uh, and they felt, I think, a little bit more at ease at Albany Harbor, which, while it was deep, was uh, fairly sheltered. So the actual uh, series of Dutch permanent settlements that we know Descended from Albany, and there are several that are older than New York City itself, technically speaking.
0: So, given that Justin, why did the, the Dutch decide to settle uh, to build a settlement on the on the southernmost tip of this island uh, that we now know as Manhattan? Well, it was
1: uh, the third Director General, uh, Peter Minuit, who came. Uh, he was running um, prospect basically from Fort Orange, which is Albany, down, and he realized that the Native American populations were using Manhattan as a seasonal trading ground, mainly because of its connections to the water. It had you know two great waterways on its side and right out the Atlantic. And he said, this is a better place to control the operations of the company. And so he made the move to move everybody down southern tip of Manhattan because uh, it was viable. Actually, the Dutch were using what they called Noten Island, which we know as Governor's Island at the time, as a staging area for ships going in and out back to Amsterdam for trade. And they just outgrew Noten Island pretty quickly uh and uh decided
0: tip of Manhattan's
1: the way to go. And that's where they could get control and have more deep water Anchorage for their boats.
0: You know, one interesting question I've had is: is how Manhattan Island is shaped um, because of its maritime history? What? How's, yeah. how's its maritime history? Yeah,
1: so if you look at a primeval map of Manhattan from before the Europeans started messing with it, uh, when the Dutch came and then the English, it's 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 much smaller, especially in Lower Manhattan, than what we have today. We've we've basically grown it out quite a bit, um, and it was mainly because of the maritime trade. We The Dutch tradition of reclaiming land was alive and well in the late 1600s, even as the British were taking over. Um, They would sell the land around the East River and the Hudson off very cheaply, mainly the East River because it was more shallow uh, and convince people or heartily suggest to the landowners that they reclaim the land by using the mud that was there, garbage, cribbage, sinking ship bottoms and all of that to greatly expand the lower Manhattan uh, coastline, which it did. If you look at a map superimposed, uh, you'll see it's quite much more land than we have. Yes, when we got yes.
0: here. <clears throat> um, we're going to talk about um, uh, the commercial aspect of it in a bit, but uh, you know, I do want to uh, talk briefly about the history of warfare in New York waters. Of course, the thing that the Dutch uh, worried about uh, by first settling in, or- in Fort Orange in Albany actually happened. The English sailed in and uh, basically took over New Netherland in 1664 1650- from the Dutch. Uh, without even a fight, the Dutch didn't have enough uh, uh, armament here to, to to put up any kind of a reasonable defense. Um, it's kind of ironic too, because then the um, uh, the English king actually was Dutch. <laughs> within a couple of decades after that, uh, and of course, when the during the American Revolution and the invasion of Long Island, the British used the water first to invade Long Island and then to um, uh, invade Manhattan, uh, which they did uh, on, from the East River. Um, one thing—a uh, sad history of water in New York, uh, with the prison ships in the East River and Wallabout Bay. There were more uh, soldiers who died on those prison ships than were killed in action during the whole Revolutionary War. I think it's eleven or twelve thousand people, something like mm, that. And that also included some women and children. It was a horrible thing that the um, that the English did uh, when fighting and fighting our revolt. Uh, by the way, there is a grand monument called the Martyrs Monument. It's at the top of Fort Greene Park. And at the foot of the monument are actually some cases uh, bearing uh, some of the bones. It's, uh, if you've not been there, it's certainly very, very moving to do that. Before we take a break, I want to briefly talk about um, uh, the defense. Uh, water all around us makes New York very vulnerable. Um, what's been the history of how the government sought to defend New York and its waters over the years since the Revolution?
1: Uh, yeah, so we uh, we definitely learned from our mistake with the British sailing right in and bringing up in their fleet at, during the revolution. Mm-hmm. So we had a series of fortification systems that the government enacted all over the country. So uh, we know Castle Clinton very well. That was part of the second system. Uh, you have Fort Jay on Governor's Island, which was actually a proto-first system revolutionary early American fort, uh, one of the only first to defend the harbor. Uh, and then you have the third system, which was a priest to Civil War era system, Fort Schuyler, uh, Fort Totten up in Queens, and um, Fort Wadsworth. So we, where,
0: is, where is Fort Schuyler?
1: Uh, Fort Schuyler in the Bronx. So basically, oh. mm. you've got Totten and Schuyler looking right at each other okay. over the sound. Uh, and they were actually designed to defend the enemy coming in through the Long Island Sound from the north into the Ooh. city.
0: Kind of like Fort Wadsworth and uh, Fort Hamilton. Correct. Right, exactly, exactly. where Staten Island and Brooklyn are. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Maritime New York. We're not going to focus on war in the later program, (laughs) but on uh, more peaceful uh, topics. We'll be back in a moment.
3: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.
0: We are back to Rediscovering New York and this episode, Maritime New York, New York and Our Waterways. My two guests, uh, Justin Rivers from Untapped New York and David Griffin from Landmark Branding. Justin, you want to tell us a little bit about some of the upcoming tours that our listeners can find out about and go on from Untapped New York?
1: Sure. Uh, so we, uh, the staple that I always turn to is the remnants of Penn Station. Very unique because everybody goes, really? Penn Station, but a uh, very popular, great tour. Um, Our maritime tour will be launching again in May. We usually do that a little bit uh, spring-summer. We partner with the uh, Stout Street Seaport. We give access to the waiver tree. Um, The Hidden Gems of Rafael Guastavino uh, is launching next month, so that will be taking uh, people around Manhattan, from Lower Manhattan all the way up to the 59th Street Bridge and Roosevelt Island, to uh, find some of the fun Guastavino hanging out. So, and
0: people can find out about those tours at
1: at uh, York dot com slash tours.
0: Great, David. Tell us a little bit about landmark branding and what you do specifically.
2: Well, Jeff, I uh, assist brokers, developers, and the uh, owners and restorers of historic and architecturally distinguished buildings, as well as architects and design firms to help tell their stories, Uh, stories of individual addresses, stories of teams. Uh, I assist with every kind of aspect of marketing, including VIP tours for clients, uh, special events that are built around the architecture of specific sites, uh, neighborhood tours, um, you name it, I assist with it. Uh, I've been writing for Brownstoner. I do listings, and uh, I have an article out recently on 10 Montague Terrace, which is one of the largest and grandest brownstone houses in Brooklyn. So that just came out recently, the last couple of weeks in Brownstone. are very happy about it, working on a follow-up on a major Greek revival house also in Brooklyn Heights. So.
0: Well, great. And there's also every building on 5th, which, by the way, yes. is part of landmarkbranding.com. It's not its own web. It's, it's yes. a web page on Yes. Um, I have to confess I haven't gone through every single building, but I've gone through right, huh. probably about a quarter of them. Oh, okay. um, I'll get yeah. to the rest. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece of architectural history. Um, moving back to the water in New York, um, we, being, we being around water to the extent that we are, it was right for shipping. Um, what has the history of shipping been like since New Amsterdam st- planted its flag in the 1620s, Justin? Well, uh, shipping has always been a lifeblood
1: of New York, probably up until the 1940s or 50s. It's still to a degree we've got it, but it was really the reason why we were here. The Dutch came here to settle fur trade, and then we moved on from there. Wheat was a big export for us for a long time as well.
0: By the way, I don't care what anyone says about the world's oldest profession in New York. The oldest profession, the oldest business probably was shipping. It was shipping.
1: Uh, It definitely was. As a matter of fact, the oldest bars were in the back of the uh, Dutch uh seaman's boats before they even had taverns in 1641 they would bring Interesting. the beer over and then wow. they would they would sell it out of the back of the boat. Huh. Wow. Um so it's that was those were the first taverns so I kind of I kind of love that little tidbit of history. But then it evolved. so um the Dutch used these things called boots, which were uh, flyboats basically these uh three-masted very fast ships to go uh over the ocean with their wares. Um and the the Dutch Uh, The English definitely followed suit with that as well. The Carracks, they were bringing all the goods from the colonies back and forth. And New York was obviously the natural choice as America's port city, even before the Erie Canal, because it was located closely to the Atlantic and easily accessible from Europe.
0: Well, the program's not really a program about shipping and the history of ships. But but I'm curious how ships changed in the 18th century when the English were here, and how would they— how different would they have looked in the harbor to um, the kind of ships that the Dutch had?
1: So the 19th century uh, really saw a lot of interesting technological changes to ships. The 18th century from the 17th to the 18th, it was sort of the ships got bigger. They got, they were able to hold more, uh, more mass to try to move faster, but they had more cargo in them. So then, you know, Fulton comes around with steam In the early 19th century and it starts to freak everybody out Mm -hmm. uh, because they think steam is actually going to get rid of all the old sail driven ships but of course steamboats when they're first invented are super sluggish Uh, so what happens is they invent something called the extreme clipper which is a really fascinating new york uh, maritime history story they it's all driven on capitalism uh, and the clipper is basically invented streamline hull smaller hull but to get to china i mean when we become a nation in the 1790s, New York's goal was to establish lucrative trade with China, like Britain had. So uh, the original carrots and the packets were basically getting into China in 250 to 300 days. They invent the extreme clipper, and they're getting there in 70. Wow! Mm-hmm. And it just it changed the game. You're no canal yet, so they're going. You know, down around mm-hmm. South America, mm-hmm. going back up and over. So, 70 days, uh, there was an extreme clipper, again, built in New York, in New York's waters on the East River. Uh, it's called the Sea Witch. The Sea Witch made the trip in 77 days. That record wasn't broken until 2003. Wow, yeah, wow. Incredible. That is so, amazing. So, uh, the technology by Any ship or
0: by a sailing ship? Uh, by a sailing ship. Saw, wow. Yeah,
1: yeah, by a sailing ship. And actually, the captain of that ship had turned around and said, The Sea Witch still wins because I didn't have any cargo. Um so the Sea Witch actually won with the cargo. It's a- absolutely amazing stories, but uh yeah, they were afraid that steam was going to run them out of business and eventually it catches up with
2: them. Did any of those ships survive in whole or in part in terms of museum vessels? As
1: far as I the Sea Witch or the Rainbow, which are the two famous extreme clippers, no. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't. Um they were wrecked both of them not soon after oh. they were built. Uh, oh, okay. They, they were uh there was a captain called Captain Robert Waterman, also a New Yorker who was, you know, sailing these guys to the to the mm. brink, mm-hmm. and the the rainbow I believe wrecked about fifteen years after. Mm. I see. Yeah. Okay,
0: but there had to have been clipper service also to Europe, just because it would have oh, taken this. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. In fact, I don't remember the exact date, but uh, the inauguration of regular scheduled sea service, including the mail, was out of New York between New York and and, and, and Liverpool. I think, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Hmm.
1: And Cunard came in with uh, that regular mail service as well,
0: which brings us to the history of ocean liners and um, more uh, hefty passage transportation. Um, when did Cunard and the White and the White Star Line begin plying the the seas? Yeah, so and Cunard. Using New York is a major base.
1: Cunard is eighteen thirties. He's got you know his side wheel steam paddle, and he's bringing mail back and forth to Liverpool. On a regular basis and then realizes that immigrants from Ireland mainly want to replace the mail. (laughs) So basically he starts dropping off mail, bringing people over, uh, and he realizes humans are great cargo. They actually pay really well. Um, So he's bringing uh, immigrants back and forth. And then after that dies out in the early 20th century, he—well, not he, but the Cunard Company— converts their ships over to luxury liners. Cause at that point that was the way to get to Europe. If you were anybody who wanted to get on one of these luxury cunards, Queen Mary too. Um,
0: and the white star line.
1: And also, the white star. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so obviously one of our famous uh, maritime stories in New York was that we were waiting for the Titanic in 1912. Uh, the white star office was uh, you could still see the remnants of it today at Nine Eleven Broadway uh, right across from Bowling green. It's now a subway sandwich shop. Um, and the old white star line outlines are still there and there's a great picture of everybody lining up, uh, in April that day to figure out what went on with their, uh, family members, if they had perished or not. And the Titanic was due to come in at pier 59, um, which people may notice when they're driving up the, uh, the West side highway. It's the one with that steel skeletal remnant hanging out as the gate. Uh, but the survivors came in on the Carpathia, which was a Cunard boat, uh, at pier 54 that day.
0: Mm. I want to talk for briefly about the the infrastructure of how these ships actually dock because that's very much a part of New York and 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 the texture of the of the physical place by by the water. Um, there were differences over the year, weren't there, in terms of slips on one side of the island, docks on another, and and also how they were built.
1: Yeah, so fascinating. And I never knew this until I started getting really into maritime history a couple years ago. I always working on the Lower East Side. I always knew that there were slips because some of the street names like Catherine and Peck still exist in in the street names. But I didn't realize that there were piers on the west side and slips. On the east side, and that's because of the you know, geological qualities of the rivers. So you had deep water anchorage on the Hudson side. So the Hudson, the sort of island, sort of stiffly or steeply just drops off, and you've got deep water there. So you could bring larger ships right up, you could build traditional pier like docks. That anchor themselves into bedrock and and pull the ship up right to the side. You couldn't do that on the East River because it was too shallow. So, so they had,
0: actually anchored some of the uh, the piers into the bedrock. Yeah. So oh, they wow.
1: actually That's... dredge and anchor like Pier A. So Pier A uh, on the west side is was dredged and anchored to bedrock, which took a while because it was deep. Um, but on the west uh, on the east side, I apologize. You could not do that. So you had to create your docks. You basically created these little inlets. Uh, so what you did is you dredged as far down as you could go, dig it out, and then created. they created something called cob docks. So they built these wooden pier structures, filled them with rock, and that's how you get the uh, first slips. And, you know, South Street Seaport, all of those guys were the uh, precursor of those were these cob dock slips.
2: Hmm. Well, I have heard that when you're out of slips, you're out of pier. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that also led to the expanded, uh, uh, the physical shoreline of lower Manhattan. And the physical there.
1: shoreline. Our shoreline started it, for those of you who know, and it's always fun to trace it, Pearl Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where original Dutch, and then it goes out from front to water to south. That, that was all created.
0: So during the days of the Erie Canal, when the Erie Canal was finished, um, in, uh, I think 1820 is when it opened up. Um, that really facilitated a tremendous increase in in trade in New York. How did how did the waterfront develop after the after the Erie Canal? Eventually? I mean,
1: it was the destination because now we were tied inland, and everybody who was going from the Midwest out to Europe had to stop at New York. I mean, it, it was it was boomtown time even more so. Um, so then the piers just stretch their way up on the west side all the way to the 50s and 60s. And you look at old maps of Manhattan from that time period, and it's literally like a, a comb hmm. uh, all the way up the island.
0: But then the water also changed in terms of uh, shipping of products hmm. uh, with the advent of container shipping. And then right. that, that basically made the uh, the piers and the docks obsolete. and uh, although you can still see movies of uh, not that long ago of longshoremen with their hooks uh, pulling boxes and things into nets and being hoisted by cranes. Um, that hasn't happened in a while. Why Why did we have con- uh, container shipping then and not uh, the old traditional ways of... Well,
1: well, container shipping was easier, so and it didn't require as much manpower on the docks itself. And, of course, when container ships come in, they start pushing um, all the facilities... In- towards jersey and south so manhattan's less of a less of a need at that point point. Mm-hmm. and so uh the reason why containers were great was because it kept the goods mm-hmm. uh it protect them so they weren't getting water damaged or moldy and coffee a lot of people don't realize this coffee was one of the biggest commodities to come in and out of new york until the 1960s 80 oh. percent of the nation's coffee was imported through new york oh really mm-hmm. wow yeah and yeah. most of the wow. dogs were developed by coffee
0: and also, there was, uh, uh, similar to the way container shipping uh, dealt a death knell on the docks of Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, um, uh, air travel did the same for the great ocean liner correct. travels. Correct, correct. Uh, and I think ocean liners pretty much, pl- in, in great frequency, were here until the 60s. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Until the dawn of the jet age. Yep. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion, but rather than talk about ocean liners, we're going to move to the topic of local passenger transportation and our waterways. We'll be back in a moment.
3: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking
2: Alternative. <laughs>
0: We're back to Rediscovering New York and our special episode on Maritime New York, New York, and our water, our waterways, not the water that we drink. But uh, that'll be a different uh, different episode. Support for the show comes from our sponsors, the Mark Maiman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is a show about New York City, including its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of this amazing place that we live in. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning, New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman is the name of the page. I know it sounds original, but that's what it is. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on both those places are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on the mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest. Uh, actually, we have our second guest here already <laughs> before we get to the second half of the show. Even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646 306 4761. Moving along on the waterway in New York, we talked about uh, transoceanic travel, but one thing we really have to pay attention to and look into is local passenger transportation. Our waterways just didn't give us the access to other sides of the world, but to other sides of our rivers,
2: um, the ferries. Uh, David, how long have we had passenger ferries in New York? We have had passenger ferries since the very earliest colonial times. Um, There was a ferry that we know of across the East River between New Amsterdam and modern-day Brooklyn, uh, at least as early as 1642. Um, Cornelius Dirksen was reportedly the earliest ferryman quote-unquote, of whom the records speak. So there were probably people before that who were kind of handling it in a more impromptu fashion. Uh, By 1654, there was enough traffic that New Amsterdam's government passed ordinances to regulate East River ferries. Uh, The first ferry to New Jersey was evidently founded in 1661 and traveled across Hudson River from Manhattan to the present location of Jersey City.
0: And that was while the Dutch were still
2: in control. Yes, yes. So ferries along the Harlem River between Uptown Manhattan and the Bronx started 1667. Ferry to Staten Island, the most famous ferry possibly in the United States, started in 1712. So that route was already in place by that, not that time. Uh, the number of ferries, of course, grew exponentially along with the population of New York. By 1904, there were 147 separate ferry services operating in New York City waters. Wow, So a yeah. lot of traffic going back and forth between the boroughs. When did we first start having steam ferries in New York? Well, the original ferries uh, that we know of were uh, sort of a mix of boats. There were some boats that were very small that were double-sailed, that could be handled by someone standing between the masts and kind of steering them. They were actually quite swift. There were also horse-powered team boats where the horses actually stood upon a treadmill, much like a hamster in a wheel, and as they walked, they moved the ferry across the, uh, the waters. Steam really? starts coming in. Really? How did they get the horses in. to do that? <laughs> did they you put a know, in front it, of them it or a wouldn't carrot? be I something know. I would care to train a horse <laughs> to do, but they did manage. No. Um, the steam ferries start in after 1814. And Robert Fulton implements uh, an East River Ferry run around that year, and then later on he merges with what was called the South Ferry Company in 1836, and by that time uh, we've sort of, we see steamboats begin to take over as kind of the method for uh, certain types of ferry service.
0: Well, I want to ask you about something about steam ferries in uh, that uh, incredibly important New York commodity that we know as real estate. Um, didn't the wide use of steam ferries also impact the development of real estate?
2: Yes, there was an ulterior motive for the creation of what was considered more sort of high-grade ferry service, particularly from the foot of Wall Street to what is now Brooklyn Heights. Uh, People wanted to market Brooklyn Heights as a convenient place for the well-to-do to to live. Prior to the 1830s period, uh, most people who were well-to-do lived north of Wall Street, and as commerce took over more and more of the bottom of the island, people kept on moving further and further north. What happened? The commute began to become unpleasant. All of a sudden, you're at Washington Square. You are, you're at 23rd Street. You keep on moving up and up and up and up and up. And the thing is, we don't think of that as a, a far distance now because we have things like subways, et cetera, traffic, you know, all, all the traffic has changed things. But back then, that was, a, 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 you know, that was a long Sheet to cross, and you were also going through industrial areas, you were going through areas that were kind of slummy. So they're sort of like, all right, what if we had ferry service that took you to a beautiful high bluff, clean air? Lots of sunlight, beautiful views, fresh breezes. Build yourself a remote villa here, surround it with gardens, and you can be in Wall Street in 45 minutes. So that became a huge selling point for Brooklyn Heights. They began dividing up the plots in 1811, just as the ferry service starts. By the 1830s, 1840s period, Brooklyn Heights had become one of the preeminent uh, neighborhoods for the well-to-do, particularly in the financial sector uh, in New York City.
1: Mm. It's how Williamsburg started, too.
2: Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: By ferry service.
0: When was Williamsburg? Uh,
1: so the- uh, it was Richard Woodhull who had a two-horse ferry mm-hmm. going from uh, Corlears Hook to Grand Street at the time. Uh, 18, I think it was like 12, because he named it Williamsburg because uh, Williams himself mm-hmm. actually came mm-hmm. to prospect right. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh,
0: so it wasn't after William, as in William and Mary, like it William was Street. Not. Ah, no, it was, it was after, different.
1: you know, we ah. have Castle William we have, uh, in, on Governor's Island, mm-hmm. named after Jonathan Williams, and that's who Richard Woodhull brought in to do the prospecting for his 13 acre real yeah. estate development. Yeah, the, Williamsburg. <laughs> the
2: Williamsburg Savings Bank, which most people know because of its an extraordinary dome, was finished in the early 1860s and was considered a real, quote unquote, advertisement, if you will, for Williamsburg as a center of its own kind of commerce. And kind of, it was like, oh, there's going to be grand architecture here. People are actually banking their money in Williamsburg, not just down on Wall Street. So it was seen as kind of a potential financial rival, I think, in terms of a center for Brooklyn.
0: Oh, wow. And, and Brooklyn was its own city, of course, until the yes. consolidation. Fulbacons- in 1898. Well, speaking of steam and ferries, um, perhaps the trip to nowhere, the boat to nowhere, got invented in New York. Uh, also with steam, we had we used to have something called day steamers. Yeah, so day steamers are
1: fascinating because I don't think they get a lot of play in New York maritime history. But uh, these day steamers were basically like floating parks. So uh, Frank Kirby was an architect, a steamer engineer who designed these really uh, gorgeous high-capacity boats. They could hold a couple thousand people, and what they would do is they would pick up a lot of the immigrants who were living in high urban density, like Klan of Deutschland, and they would get on these boats. They'd bring them up the Hudson to places up further up the Hudson Valley to get them out for the day. Like That's Bear how Mountain. they called them Day no. Yeah, Bear Mountain, right, correct. And uh, basically, the minute they got on the boat, it was considered part of like the jaunt, and they'd use them as almost these floating parks, which is uh, a really fascinating history. So we had the Washington Irving, um, uh, we had a boat called the Hamilton for a while, which was also a Kirby boat. And then of course we had the, the general slocum.
0: I remember we'll talk about the slocum in a second. Yeah. I have, remember one of my, uh, uh, grandmothers telling me that this is the term she used when she was quote, keeping company with my grandfather before they married. <laughs> yeah. That uh, a couple of times, I actually saw pictures of this from the late 20s when they were taking day steamers up up the Hudson yeah. to, 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 to Bear Mountain. Yeah. And that brings us uh, to a sad uh, maritime incident. Um, it was arguably the first or the second uh, worst maritime disaster in the United States when that happened, and that was uh, the ferry the General Slocum. Uh-huh. Um, the Slocum was picked up uh, mostly women and children from the east, Lower East Side East Village, in a place that was called, also known as Klein Deutschland at the third most uh, uh, number of German-speaking people in the world, after Vienna and Berlin at that point. And uh, there was a fire on the boat, and uh, the captain didn't believe that uh, there was a fire. At first, he thought a kid was uh, uh, joking. Some of the lifeboats were nailed to the the ship. The um, life jackets broke apart. And somewhere between 11 and 1,200 people, I think, Justin, were killed. Many of them drowned in relatively shallow water. They think more now. Mm. Later, they've
1: said almost 1,300 might have been.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, And that happened in 1904. Uh, And that, by the way, led to the uh, uh, exodus of a lot of German-speaking people from the Lower East Side and the, what we now know is the East Village, to further uptown to Yorkville and also to Williamsburg, yep. where there are already some uh, German-speaking people living. Uh, and that brings us to, you, meant, you mentioned it briefly, David, the most famous ferry in all of New York, the Staten Island Ferry.
2: Yes, uh,
0: it started in, this, in the 1700s. I thought it was more recent than
2: that. 1712 is when wow. the first course was set for what was known as the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, it is the sole remaining continuously operated passenger ferry route in New York and potentially, I think, the United States. Uh, it is now operated, of course, by the New York City Department of Transportation. The route is 5.2 miles through New York Harbor between Manhattan and Staten Island, um, docking between um, Battery Park. And St. George in Staten Island. And it gives you these amazing views of Ellis Island, Governor's Island, Statue of Liberty. Uh, The ferry makes the trip at approximately 25 minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Boats leaving every 15 to 20 minutes during peak hours. Get your tickets now, (laughs) folks. (laughs) And how much does it cost? It is free. Free. Free since 1997. It has been free. So...
0: It has to be the best deal in New York. And I have to, you know i 'm a native new Yorker i 've been on that ferry at least a hundred times, and i 'm still amazed by, yeah. by that ferry.
2: It is extraordinary. Yeah.
0: Now one of the little secrets I have to share, although people may uh, uh, do this uh, in great numbers now and, and, and destroy a little bit of the view. My favorite place on that ferry is down at the bottom level mm-hmm. at the water level when it's pulling out of the city mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're uh, pulling out of lower Manhattan. There are, there's hardly anyone who does it. You're just sort of there with the water rushing in the propellers. And as the lower part of the, of, of the city just gets further and further distance, it truly is one of my favorite things to see in New York.
2: Well, there was a, um, a written account, I believe, associated mm-hmm. with uh, the Staten Island Ferry where someone says, well, we admired particularly the view of the skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. and this was written back in the 1850s. So you might be thinking... What skyscrapers? Well, the thing that we've forgotten, of course, is that skyscraper uh, is a term for a very tall building, but it's derived from a much older term for the mast of a sailing vessel, particularly an ocean-going one. So the cluster of skyscrapers at the tip of Manhattan has been there as a navigable kind of landmark or a feature of the landscape for many hundreds of years. People would say the forest of skyscrapers uh, at the at the foot of New York, and the buildings took their name from that and kind of developed it as a kind of a, a nautical illusion, if you will, particularly since Manhattan is so pointy at that end, the island itself suggested to people of that time a vast ship kind of emerging from the harbor.
0: Well, that would make for an interesting beginning of a movie, someone in the 1850s being on the uh, uh, ferry to Staten Island and seeing the skyscrapers of the, right. of the ships, and then uh, fast forward to uh, uh, right now. Um, we're going to take a break in a second, but before we do, uh, I want to just mention, speaking of ferries, uh, they have made, although the Staten Island Ferry has some notable records for ferry use, even national ones, that, that I think more people take the ferry than any other... Uh,
2: it is two, 23.9 million riders were recorded in the fiscal year of 2016. Wow. And it is the single busiest ferry route in the United States, uh, as well as the world's busiest passenger-only ferry system. In other words, there's no freight, there's no mail, there's no cars, there's no cargo. Um, the ferry is equally popular among tourists and visitors. It, it is... Probably the most single most famous ferry ride in the world. Of course, you
0: could take cars on it until September 11th, but they stopped that. I remember gr- growing up, Mom, we yes. used to always get on the ferry. It was quite a, uh, a fun thing to drive onto the ferry with the car and get out and right. take a look at the harbor. Um, speaking of ferries, they have made quite a resurgence uh, with uh, New York Ferry and New York Waterway. Uh, there are how many fer- uh, ferry routes are there now, Justin? Dozens of them. That, uh,
1: yeah, I'm not even sure. I would say over dozens. I would say that you know, uh, people are fascinated with height underground, and our new thing is uh, we're going to take to the waterways again. People yeah. are using them as commuter ways yeah. quite frequently.
2: And there's the New York water taxis as yeah, well. Taxi, I mean, there's just a really a multiple uh, variety of options that you have for traveling in the water. It's quite a, quite remarkable, and now. it's
0: a wonderful way to uh, to get from one place to another in some instances, and also to take in the view and to and the relatively fresh air of, right. the, of the water. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about another very important thing about New York and water, uh, how our water has impacted the vistas of the city, how it's impacted our architecture. We'll be back in a moment.
5: Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
4: That's the Conscious Consultant Hour Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon, on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com
0: We're back to rediscovering New York and our special episode of Maritime New York, New York and our waterways. Well, we've been speaking about the founding of New York, of New Amsterdam on the water, about commerce, transportation, ocean liners, ferries, defense, and war. And one of the things that New York is amazingly famous for is our incredible architecture. And that takes us to the next segment of the show. Nautical themes are common in architecture, Uh, one of the greatest things about New York. Uh, David, what are some of the most incredible things that architects have designed that have been somehow impacted and influenced by the water or the trade around the water?
2: Well, you know, it's very interesting to just walk around the city almost in any neighborhood and gaze up at some of the details on the older buildings and realize that you're actually never that far away from a depiction of a ship or a fish or some form of nautical symbolism. Um, There are numerous buildings throughout the entire city that incorporate these symbols, um, everything from anchors to sails to dolphins to serpents. Uh, And I think that the city has never really lost track of the fact that this was a maritime city, that it was a port city, that the reason the harbor was here is the reason the city itself is here. You have a lot of um, references in New York City architecture and a lot of metaphors being made. We spoke earlier of the skyscrapers, uh, but, for example, the Flatiron Building was often compared to the Prow, of a vast ship when it was built, In 1902, it resembled the front end of one of the luxurious liners that was then beginning to ply the waters of the Atlantic. Uh, buildings that are more tied into maritime history, uh, I think one of the top buildings, obviously, is the New York City Custom House, which stands down near uh, Battery Park. Um, Custom House, of course, the building associated with the harbor. Um, more so after, after anything except actual shipyards and the ferry terminals themselves, um, housing a branch of office devoted to international customs. The organization is actually located, it's, it's been located at several places over the years. 1790, we see it at South William Street. Uh, 1799, 1815, it was in Government House, which is roughly on the former site of Fort Amsterdam. Uh, 1842, it moves to 26 Wall Street in a beautiful new building, Greek Revival, which is today the Federal Hall National mm. Memorial, uh, a very distinguished building that actually sits on the place where George Washington was sworn in as the President of the United States. So that there's a statue to been, in front of him.
0: That had to have been one of the biggest buildings that ever went up in New York at that time. It I mean, was it's, it's, the it's,
2: largest building made of granite when it was built in New York City, and then the columns of the bank opposite, which are now incorporated to 4455 Wall Street, were larger in terms of the actual unbroken pieces of granite. So those are the largest granite uh, columns uh, in the United States, are the ones at 4455. Um, but in 1907, it moves into a new building, which is now called the Alexander Hamilton U.S. Custom House, uh, built on the site where old government house sat earlier, on the south side of Bowling Green. Um, in 1973, the offices themselves moved to Six World Trade Center, which was one of the buildings destroyed in the September 11th attacks in 2001. Customs is now handled by the Port Authority, and there isn't really a central location anymore the way that there used mm. to be. A lot of this stuff is kind of it's, – it's much more handled kind of case-by-case case basis, port-by-port. Port. Um, the Alexander Hamilton Custom House is perhaps the most impressive structure ever associated with the Office of Customs in the United States. There's a lot of great custom houses in the cities up and down the eastern seaboard and on the west coast, but this is really the grandest one. Uh, built 1902-1907 by the federal government, Uh, southern tip of Manhattan, of course. Uh, The Custom House was named to commemorate Alexander Hamilton, who we all know through the well-known Broadway musical now. Um, The building is now the home of the George Gustav Hay Center of the National Museum of the American Indian and holds the largest collection of Native American art and artifacts outside of the United States Capitol collections in Washington, D.C., and outside of certain collections on reservations throughout the country It really is an extraordinary uh, sort of collection to visit, and it's in an extraordinary building. It was designed by Cass Gilbert, who later designed the Woolworth Building. In some ways, he was chosen uh, for that commission based on his work with the Custom House. And it is an example of what is called the Beaux-Arts style, which is sort of a distillation of French and Italian Renaissance motifs uh, based on a new interest in Paris during the same period in uh, the precepts of Neoclassicism.
0: We also have the Cunard Building, which is uh, very much influenced by by. uh, Yes. Justin uh, talked about and and mentioned that. What is special about the Cunard Building?
2: Well, the Cunard Building is a a skyscraper. It's one of the skyscrapers that replaced the skyscraping masts of the older ships. And it is designed very much to kind of capture, uh, I think, the kind of nautical symbolism. Uh, It's a remarkable skyscraper, uh, designed by Benjamin Wistar Morris in conjunction with Karen Hastings who did the New York Public Library. Uh, That is The location of one of the largest uh, great halls in any building in New York City or actually in the country, Um, the lobby contains a ceiling of groin vaults, each one of which corresponds to a series of arches. And inside, extending 185 feet east to west, uh, is the Great Hall, which has this remarkable uh, lobby ceiling decorations. What's the address of the Cunard building? Uh, The Cunard building is, I believe, 5 Broadway. And it's still there. Yes, Yes, it is still there. It's actually an interior landmark. So uh, it is used now uh, by uh, Cipriani. Uh, It was the post office for a while after Cunard vacated it. And it has incredible frescoes inside. If you have any chance at all to go in and take a look at them, they show the sort of oceanic explorers, the ships of Leif Erikson, of Christopher Columbus, Sebastian Cabot, Francis Drake, uh, enormous portraits of the ships themselves. They almost seem to be life-size, and given the small size of ships back then, they might be. Uh, and it really is kind of one of the, the great celebrations of ocean travel uh, captured in an interior in New York City. Mm-hmm.
0: Justin, what is the International Mercantile Marine Building?
1: Well, I, I think it's the little building that could down there because it's sandwiched between the Customs House and Cunard. And it's, it's one Broadway. It's on the site of where uh, George Washington's headquarters was during the Revolution. Uh, as a matter of fact, the International Mercantile Marine Building, J.P. Morgan, came and consolidated a bunch of English and American lines that were in competition with Cunard, like Red Star, White Star, Dominion, American, mm. puts them all under one house and takes what was called the Washington Building. Uh, basically strips it down, bow arts it up in a different way, uh, and uh, uses it as the home for uh, ticketing and operations for the International Mercantile Marine, which becomes this conglomeration. And uh, what's so cool about it is, much like Cunard, but on a smaller scale, it's a living remnant of New York's maritime history. It's a city bank. And if you enter, depending on what side of Broadway or Whitehall you enter on, it'll say cabin class or first class above the door. Uh, oh. <laughs> and then the bank itself, it's an interior landmark, so they preserve the ticketing area. Uh, and you go basically do your banking where you would buy tickets to any of the International Mercantile Marine. Wow, well, I have to go check that oh, out. Oh, it's really cool. And mm-hmm. I bring my tours in there by using my ATM. Oh, I, I, oh, I card in and then I show them all <laughs> of the uh, – it, it's great. It's, it's how we do it, so –
0: well, guys, there's so much to talk about, and we're almost out of time. But if we're talking about maritime history, there's one fun subject that we can't avoid or can't go over, uh, can't overlook, and that's pirates. Ooh. Was there pirate history in New York? There's a lot of pirate a history lot. in New York.
1: And mainly, uh, you know, you've got Captain William Kidd, who is the pirate that Blackbeard is modeled after. Um, Mainly because he was, he was an English nobleman, but he lived in New York and used New York as a base. He got his boat, the uh, Adventure Galley, in New York. He actually helped to build the first Trinity with that boat. He put the spire on using the tackle of it. But there was a governor by the name of Benjamin Fletcher, which we have Fletcher Street down in lower Manhattan, who would take bribes from pirates. Basically $100 a head. If you paid a hundred dollars a head, he'd let you stay in safety in New York, which is why, for in the late 1690s, we were a haven of piracy. Uh, and William Kidd actually is hired by the British to fight against piracy, but he wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, the, the deal was they would get a you know a booty basically from whoever they captured as pirates, and then they became pirates to make money. Wow! Uh, and he gets captured, and of course his ending is quite tragic. He English. Well, Love his head or hang him. Actually,
0: it sounds like a classic New York story yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of capitalism. You can't beat yeah, him join him <laughs> Exactly, that's exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, guys, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Um, we've just finished this week's trip around New York and around our waterways. Um, our guests have been Justin Rivers, the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide at Untapped New York. That's UntappdNewYork.com slash doors. And David Griffin, the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. And you can reach David and see his work at LandmarkBranding.com. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storrier. Our engineer is the amazing Sam Lebowitz. He gave us a little extra time this evening. Our special consultant is David Griffin, sitting right here of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info
4: at Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?
0: Every Tuesday live at 7pm, we focus on a particular neighbourhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7pm on talkradio.nyc.
3: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.